everybody, welcome along to episode 87 of Percussion Discussion. Uh, as usual, please check out our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, our world-famous YouTube channel. Uh, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, it really, really helps us. And this way, you won't miss any of the previous or upcoming episodes that we've got for you. And there's plenty of those, so we wouldn't want that. If you prefer to listen on the go, you can find all of our conversations in podcast form and you can find those. They're free to download on Spotify, iTunes, and of course, all of your regular podcast providers. So if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a short review. This really helps. On to today's guest, a wonderful, wonderful drummer who has played with so many stellar artists, including Paul McCartney, Dire Straits, Julian Cope, the list goes on and on and on. Um, a guy who's who's known for having a great feel and always a killer drum sound. It gives me great, great pleasure to welcome the fabulous Mr. Chris Witten. So look, Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Likewise, likewise. And I, I know you're a busy man. We've been sort of emailing back over the last yep. week. So uh, that's that's good to hear. Um, so, yeah, as I say, it's really appreciated it. Now, it, let's let's go back, if you don't mind, to the very beginning. Before we before we do anything else, where did where did music catch fire for you? What was the first memory of music? Right. Well, I think my mother was really into music and she was. She was from the World War II generation, but she liked pop music in the 60s. And so she liked the Beatles and things like that. And I had an older brother, seven years older than me. So he was, by the time I was like sort of, um, you know, seven, eight, nine, he was bringing albums home, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd and things like that. So my earliest memories are when the Beatles films came out, Hard Days, Night and Help. I think my mother took me to see those. Right. And I remember I had the album at home and I used to, I didn't, I didn't have any idea about being a drummer or anything like that. But what I actually did was I had two knives and I was banging on tin pots to the, to the records. I wasn't pretending to play guitar or yeah. pretending to sing. It was funny. I was banging on tin pots. And then um, to cut a long story short, I hated school. I never liked school. I hated the sports day. If you've ever seen that movie, Kez, yeah. with the schoolmaster it was just like that I went to school in Newcastle football crazy and the and the big schoolmaster used to welly the ball at you and and so I used to run along the touchline terrified anyway one day the headmistress came into the class and said oh we've got a music teacher coming in and he specializes in percussion does any is anybody interested in taking music lessons so I just immediately shot my hand up anything to get out of some of these maths and physics and and so i started learning percussion that was when i was about 11 years old yeah brilliant so i mean it sounds remarkably similar to my uh my upbringing as well i was around the same age and uh right so w w when he said i mean a lot of teachers call percussion lessons it could be anything it could be drum kit what was it percussion as well was it a bit of everything no it was classical i mean oh, this was before this is before people started to think that that pop or rock was anything worth teaching, mm. you know? So it was all classic. It was timpani, snare drum, stuff like that, triangle, xylophone. And I played in the school orchestra. And then we, as a family, we moved from Newcastle to Wales and I continued on there. And I played in the National Youth Orchestra of Wales a couple of years running, doing timpani and everything. And I hated, I still hated school. <laughs> and so I was looking for a way out of school. 
and Leeds College of Music had just kind of started up and they were the only college. I think Manchester College had a what they call like light music course, which is based around sort of jazz, really. They didn't recognise rock or pop or anything like that, but some some educationalists with foresight had decided, wouldn't it be good if we could teach kids jazz like Duke Ellington and Miles Davis? And so Manchester were doing a course and then Leeds started up and they were doing a course. And I persuaded my parents to let me apply to Leeds as a foundation student when I was 16, instead of going to sixth form. And I auditioned at Leeds. I got in and, and that was it from then on. I was at Leeds for four years. I did two years foundation course and then I did two of the three years of the main jazz course. Mm. And I was doing so many gigs by the third year that they said, if you miss any more classes, we're going to kick you out. And the next day I got a phone call for a whole bunch of gigs. And so I just said to my parents, you know, I either turned professional or I turned down all these gigs, upset a lot of people and do my diploma, which wasn't worth anything at the time. You know, a, a diploma in jazz wasn't worth anything. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I left college before the final year. Interesting. I mean, I mean, it's an amazing story. And, and that's, that's kind of how it should be. If you think, you know, you've had all this training to go and do this, you get the offers, you go and do it. But prior, yeah, prior to, um, to going to Leeds, I, I'm guessing you were gigging about uh, with, with different were you were you playing jazz and what have you before then or was no I no I mean it was all classical everything was classical right, okay. was, nobody would take pop music seriously yeah. but my parents bought me some bits and bobs of a drum kit like a, an Ajax bass drum and a new era snare drum you know with about four lugs on it and stuff yeah. like that and so I used to come home from school every day and as I say my brother was seven years older than me so I had all these um Jimi Hendrix albums and cream and stuff like that um and so I used to come home from school at 3 30 and then I'd put on records and just play along to them for like two hours we had we had neighbors the neighbors were unbelievably you know, kind to let me make a racket for two hours every evening. And so I hadn't I hadn't had any really teaching in drum kit or anything when I went to audition at Leeds. And again, the foundation course at Leeds was classical based. Yeah. They had an orchestra at Leeds. And then they had the from 18 years old, you could do the jazz course. And so I spent two years doing the classical course at Leeds, but the whole time I was hanging out with the jazz kids older than me. And I just started gigging with them. So I didn't really start gigging until I was about 17 years old with some student bands just in local pubs and clubs and things. Sure. By the time I got on the jazz course when I was 18, I was playing in two or three different student bands. And I went to Spain one summer playing with a band, entertaining troops and just loads of, loads of I was gigging more than anything else really. I didn't really have I didn't really like the lessons and I didn't go to all the lessons, but I was just playing every day. And the thing is I was playing with people a lot better than me. So if I'd go to a band practice and we were playing a song that went, you know, six, eight, 11, eight, 15, four, every other bar. And I just couldn't play it. I just went home and practiced till I could play it. So that's how I improved really. He was just not wanting to be humiliated in the bands that I was playing in. That's a, that's quite an, a, quite an amazing story. I, so just out of interest, were you playing mallet percussion as well? Were you heavily into the mallet stuff? No. Well, I, I was supposed to, but I, I hated it and I couldn't do it. So I, and I used to like timpani 
Yeah. I used to, we used to take it in turn in the National Youth Orchestra of Wales as well. We all took it in turn. So I would, I'd play a piece on timpani and then the next piece I'd do triangle and the piece after that I'd do snare drum. And it was the same at college. You'd do a concert every three months or something and somebody would play timpani and I'd play snare drum. And you just mix it up like that. I used to enjoy it uh, tuned-wise. I enjoyed the timpani and some of the contemporary classical stuff we played, the, ch- the tuning would change every few bars. So you had to know how to tune the timpani and everything. Yeah. But I was never any good at reading music and playing xylophone. I mean, I did all the exams and everything. I got grade eight or something in percussion. I did all the exams, but as soon as I didn't have to play vibraphone or xylophone, I just stopped. I really was only interested in playing drum kit yeah. and all the other stuff was a means to an ends to play drum kit really. But it's an incredible grounding to have, to have that ability, isn't it, as well? And underst- it gives you a different understanding as well, I think, playing playing some of the other percussion, maybe. I don't yes. Know. Yeah. But learning to read music was amazing. And at the, when I was at college, I read a lot of music because the, the, the extras, we would do, we would do like concert playing Herbie Hancock stuff. Billy, it was at the time of a fusion, Lenny White, Return to Forever. And so the lecturer would bring in to the class a full score of all these fusion tracks and you'd have to learn to play play them from the music, you know, sight reading and stuff like that. So I did a lot of that at college. Then as soon as I left college, no one ever asked me to read any music ever again. It was all do stuff by ear. Yeah. But because I wanted to be like a freelance studio musician, I used to write the stuff out, but really simple. I would just like verse, verse one, eight bars, chorus, bridge, eight bars, chorus, 16 bars. And then you never get lost. You could play the song first time through or second time through pretty much accurately because you had it all written down in advance. And I could write in specific drum fills or specific figures. If the producer said, can you copy the guitar part?" coming out of the chorus I could write it down and play it first time so really the reading thing was essential to becoming a busy studio musician really which is what I enjoyed the most yeah absolutely so once you've um, you've escaped after three years escaped might be the wrong word I don't know <laughs> you said you were you know you were getting work left right and center was this mainly studio work at this point or had you had you got into the studio stuff no yet? I hadn't done any studio work it was all I was playing in student bands and we were doing um, clubs. Like in those days, it, it, it was in the early days of DJs even. It was in the disco era, you know, um, Saturday Night Fever and all that. And so I used to play in this club in Sheffield um, three or four nights a week. And there were no mics on the drums. Right? It was a huge dance hall and people would come and dance and then the dj would do a set of an hour playing earth wind and fire and the bgs and all that kind of and chic and then we would do a set of an hour and i'd be playing acoustic drums so it was a really good grounding because i was trying to match the records and you know with no mics on the drums and you sounded rubbish because i mean obviously the production on the on the earth wind and fire tracks was amazing so we were trying to match that but i i did i didn't do any studio work for years, the first time I did studio work was um, I moved to London in 1980 and didn't know anyone and had no work. Well, I was, I was to say, I was playing all these gigs around Sheffield and Leeds and Manchester and places. And I thought the only way I'm really going to get anywhere is if I move to London. And so I moved to London. I was basically living in a squat, sleeping on a floorboards kind of thing. 
and burning uh, fruit cartons in the fire to keep warm at night and all that kind of stuff. I had absolutely no money. And um, I was just, and then I found a band to play with in pubs again. And then a friend of mine from Sheffield, Jeremy Beat, was playing bass in a band oh, called Live, yes. Live Wire. Jeremy. Yeah. He's, he's done okay for himself, hasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Alan yeah I love Jeremy. Paul Carrick. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Paul Carrick. By yeah. the time he was in this band called Live Wire, which were a kind of slightly below standard dire straits kind of thing. Yeah. And he said, we're looking for a new drummer for a tour can you do it? So I went and auditioned for them and I did a tour of France and Italy. And at the end of that, unfortunately, the band broke up, but um, the record company in Italy really loved the band and loved the rhythm section, me and Jeremy. And they invited us back to Italy to play on some albums. So I, I did three or four, the first studio stuff I ever did was three or four quite successful pop albums in Italy, which was just amazing for me to be in Rome for a month making records in the studio it was just absolute heaven it was great that's just isn't that the perfect story i mean it it's it, it takes some balls doesn't it to move to london without many contacts to start with doesn't it you know and then yeah i mean i think i've always taken risks yeah. because not to take a risk is very, very boring and i'm more afraid of what the outcome is if i don't take a risk what am i going to end up doing you know working on a building site a year later, depressed. So I'm always happy to take a risk. And so it was a risk. But at the time, I thought, you know, I hang around Leeds and Sheffield. And if I'm lucky, I might hook up with the next Human League or the next ABC or something. But if I'm not lucky, I'm just stuck here. Yeah. And I just thought, if I go to London, there's there's a lot more competition, but there's also more opportunity. So I decided, I decided to move to London. And it's kind of a double-edged sword because when you move to London – you, you you become known as a freelance player, kind of a mercenary player. Whereas if I had been in the next Heaven 17 or ABC, you get a lot more credibility for being, you know, Larry Mullen Jr. in U2 or, you know, somebody like that um, playing forever in a, in a band and you make more money as well. But uh, Actually, as it turned out, I was very happy with that because I love playing different music with different people all the time. So being a freelance player really just suited me. Absolutely. I mean, and, and at that time as well in London, we're, well, UK-wide was like the real heyday for session players, wasn't it, in the 80s when you think think of what was going on musically? At the yes. Time. Well, it was kind of difficult because I've done four years at music college mm -hmm. and I was playing fusion like and... I kind of missed out on punk and new wave. I left college in 1979 and obviously punk was almost over by then. Yeah. I really liked um, some of I liked Blondie and I liked Ian Jury and the Blockheads and all that kind of stuff. But, and I liked the clash, but I wasn't going out and buying the albums and going to see them live or anything. So when I arrived in London, I was a complete fish out of water because everybody in London was obsessed with new wave, the police, yeah. the clash and all that kind of stuff. And no one wanted to know a drummer that could play like Lenny White or that kind of music. I'm not saying I could play like Lenny White, but that kind of music anyway. Yeah. And so the first few auditions I went to, people, they heard me play and they said, oh, you play great. What what have you been doing until now? And I'd say, no, playing jazz rock in clubs in Leeds. And they're going, right, next kind of thing. <laughs> so you had to kind of, you had to kind of play down the academic side of it and you know they were really only interested in people who could barely play in a way 
you know, it wasn't cool to be able to play. It was more cool that, oh, I picked up my drumsticks two weeks ago and here I am auditioning. That was more the cool sort of thing. Oh. You know, going into, you know, the Buzzcocks and the Smiths and Joy Division and everything, no one wanted an educated musician at that time. So that, that punk attitude was still there at that point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. In stuff. So obviously your first time in a studio, was that, had that kind of made your mind up, this is what I want to do? Do you, Did you enjoy it that much, you know, the stuff in Italy you did? I, I really enjoyed the stuff in Italy because, as I said, I could read music and I wrote the charts down and they were all very impressed. Oh, you played the song the second time through. It sounds great and everything. Now, then when I started to accept sessions in London, it was a nightmare and uh, and. <laughs> I don't really know how I got through it, really. It was just a total nightmare because it was just a completely different ball game. I was lucky enough to get asked to do some good quality sessions with top record producers and everything. And I realised I just didn't know the first thing about drum sounds or how to tune. I'd been to college for four years. I'd never had a single lesson in tuning drums. There was no studio at the college. We didn't have any studio classes, studio craft or anything like that. And so I was just playing by ear and making it up as I went along, which was okay for these Italian records. But as soon as I was in like 1981, 1982 London, I was competing with, you know, um, American drummers, Jeff Beccaro and Jerry Marotta and people and Steve Gadd and everything. And I was just so beneath that level. So it was a real baptism of fire. And the first couple of sessions I did, I, I got there an hour early, set up the drums, got my drum sound. And then the, then the engineer was pulling his hair out saying, oh, I can hear a rattle from your second tom. And can you get rid of it? I had no clue how to get rid of it. And they would say, or they would say, your snare drum's making tom one ring. Can you get rid of that? And I had literally had no idea how to even go about doing that. So I was just... It was an absolute nightmare. I never worked with any of those producers again. It was a bloody disaster. So, so very anyway, much learning on the job, very much so. Yeah, it was terrible, though. You know, it's terrible learning on the job. But um, anyway, I've, sold, I've told this story 10,000 times, but very briefly, I was still in touch with the people in Italy, and they said, we're sending one of our artists to London to make an album. Can you play drums on it? And I said, yeah, that'd be great, another Italian album. And they said, the only thing is... The artist is a massive fan of Peter Gabriel and he's asked Jerry Morota to play some drums on some tracks. Right. And so you'll be playing drums on some songs and Jerry Morota, and I was pissed off and I thought, oh, that's a drag. I'm only going to get paid for like four songs and I'll be... Anyway, the, the producer phoned me up and said, oh, we're in the studio with Jerry tomorrow. Why don't you come down and meet the guys and hang out? And so I thought, oh, okay, I'll go down. And I sat in on this session and Jerry Morota set up his drums and started to play, and I just thought, this is incredible. This is exactly where I want to be. He sounds amazing. His playing is amazing. And so I went into the studio where he was, and I was asking him questions, what heads are you using, how are you tuning them? And I noticed he was playing everything rim shots, which I never did. I was still playing like disco center hits, which didn't sound powerful. And, and I was putting like gaffer tape on the toms to try and cut down on the ring, but his toms were all ringing, but he tuned them so that they all rang in tune with each other kind of thing. And he did the first song and he did it like first take. And I, and I thought, oh, I, I sometimes spend like three hours on a song and he's done it in 10 minutes. And then he did the next song in like the second take, took 10 minutes, 
from the first time ever hearing it. And I thought, I've just got to completely up my game. And so that actually sorted me out. I actually, I went out and he was playing Yamaha recording customs with clear emperor heads. Yes, and a classic sound. And a black, look big black beauty and things like that. And so the next day I had this old jazz scratch kit, which is a very nice kit, but I didn't really know how to tune it or anything. So the next day I sold that and bought a Yamaha recording custom and some emperor heads and tuned them the same way I'd watched Jerry Morotti tune them. And I, I saved up and bought a Ludwig Black Beauty. And and I just thought when I, I felt more confident, I thought when I go to the next session, at least I'll have the right gear and it's just down to me to make it sound right. And I actually started playing rim shots, which was very difficult at first to get them consistent but I just kept at it for two or three months just constantly practicing rim shots until I could get a consistent sound out of it and yeah so that was about 1984 and from there on I I was just sorted out and I became known as one of the go-to sort of studio guys in London after that thanks to Jerry Morata really. Well that's I like that story I've not heard that one so that's uh, that's a first for me. Actually, the funny thing I have the funny thing about that that I haven't told anyone before, it's a slight tangent, but I lived in Kentish Town at the time, and there was that big drum shop in Kentish Town, Pro Percussion. Yeah. And I used to walk, I used to walk past there every day going to a band rehearsal or whatever. And I walked past one day, I looked in the window, and there was this old Ludwig snare drum in the window, and they wanted 400 pounds for it or something, and it looked really beat up and terrible. And I kept thinking, I thought to myself, I bet that sounds really good because I, I think Ludwig drums really sound good. I bet that sounds good. But £400, it's so beat up. I can't believe they're asking £400 for it. So for about three months, every time I walked past Pro Percussion, I looked at the window and thought I should go in there and ask them about it one day. I never did. Anyway, just before the session, this Italian album session, I thought I'll go in and buy it. And I went down to Pro Percussion. It had gone. Oh, we sold it yesterday. And when I went to the studio, Jerry Brotter was setting up his drums. He had the flipping drum. And I said, <laughs> I said, what's that drum? He said, oh, yeah, I bought it in pro percussion yesterday. It's amazing. And it was one of those NOB, nickel over brass, 1920s. It looked really beat up and ordinary. I'd never seen one before, but it was an amazing drum. He said, oh, yeah, it was dirt cheap, 400 quid. And I oh, no, I should have bought that two months ago. I'd be worth thousands now, won't it? <laughs> no. Oh, wow. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, you've talked about drum sounds and everything I've ever heard you play on, the drum sounds have always been incredible. I mean, really, right, thanks. really great. I mean, I, I know that it comes from source, obviously, you know, um, and I know the engineer and producers have a lot to do with it, but it has to be right at source, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. The, the, the old adage is you can't polish a turd and that is no that's right it's very true especially you know with drums and uh so it's interesting to hear you talk about that you know and um because i got myself sorted out on these italian albums yeah and the first proper record that i did where i'd sorted out my drum sound was the whole of the moon the water boys thing yeah that was about 1985 yeah. And so from then I was playing properly and I could tune a kit and things and I could get a proper sound. So kind of all the stuff that where I wasn't really happy with my drum sound, not many people have heard. <laughs> well, that I mean, for example, that track is a big walloping drum sound, isn't it? Quite a departure from everything that had gone before it with the Water Boys. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I know because I spent two weeks in the studio with them at the beginning of the album. And again, Mike Scott 
never really liked me because he thought I was too schooled. Mm-hmm. He he was into the punk ethic and he thought that I was too academic about drums and everything. And Carl, the keyboard player, got me into the band. They were looking for a drummer and Carl recommended me. Carl Wallinger, so, no, yeah. yeah, Carl Wallinger, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I did two weeks and we didn't really get anything done. And Mike was constantly saying, I don't like the drums on this. I don't like the drums on that. So after two weeks, I said, goodbye, I'll see you later. And then about two or three months later, they phoned me up out of the blue. We're working on a song in Liverpool, Amazon Studios, and we think you'd be great on it. Can you come up? So I went up there, actually on the train, because I couldn't drive. I I lugged all my drums onto the train, into the baggage compartment on the train. Went up to Amazon, and they played me this track. And it just sounded like Prince. Mm. And I just thought, this is right up my street, because I absolutely love Prince and Purple Rain and the Sign of the Times. And apparently, while we were on tour in America with the Waterboys, one on one day off, Carl and Mike had gone to see Purple Rain and Mike had absolutely loved it. And they'd ended up writing this song, The Hole of the Moon, sort of influenced by Prince. And so it was right up my street. So I just played the straight sort of Prince type drum beat through it. And yeah, that was it was the only time Mike just let me play what I wanted to play. That's what I always say, you know, on everything else. He wanted to micromanage me and tell me how he wanted me to play. But on that, he just said, go for it. And I went for it, and it turned out to be their biggest hit. <laughs> what did he make of that? Was he because <laughs> obviously, you know, the one time he lets you do your thing, it blows. I think up. he thought it was going to be a B side or right. something. Okay. I think that's why he let Carl do more of the production, and he let me just play what I wanted because I think he thought, oh, this sounds so much like Prince, it can't possibly be a Waterboys. Record, it'll be a B side or something. And when the record company heard it, of course, they freaked out and said, This is going to be a massive hit. And sure. so they put it out. So he was a bit upset about that. And actually, he famously refused to do Top of the Pops, you know. And so it didn't get as high in the charts the first time around. It got to about number 24 the first time around because he refused to do Top of the Pops and it dropped out of the charts the following week. But it's made up for it since, hasn't it? That's- yeah, no, it's an enduring. Actually, the most ex- I know I didn't go and see the show, but I've seen it on YouTube. But the most exciting thing for me was on that YouTube tour about eight, ten years ago. They sort of opened with it. They had the the track coming through the PA when the uh-huh. lights were going down, and there's all these videos on YouTube of them playing these enormous football stadiums in America. The lights go down, the crowd go up, and the whole of the moon comes on with my drums. It's absolutely brilliant. Wow. I love that. That's a. I bet you did. Yeah. <laughs> What's not to like about that? No, exactly. Great walloping. Oh, it's just such a such a great song. Anyway, let's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, obviously, Julian Cope as well. Uh, was that after the Waterboys? It was, really. I did something before. I did a an album with Julian that was more kind of uh, arty, mm. weirdo album um, early on in the Waterboys. And I think he just had a contractual obligation to do one more album. So I did this weird album called Fried, which is a bit of a cult classic, but it didn't sell any. And um, the only good thing about that was after the album came out, somebody in Japan said, can you come and do some shows in Japan? And so they called me up and I, I rehearsed for, with Julian for a couple of weeks and we all went to Japan, which was about, I'd never been to Japan before. 
And although he was kind of left field, he had some really fanatical fans in Japan. And we played all these great shows in Japan. So that was a good experience. And then after the whole of the moon debacle, not doing Top of the Pops and everything, Carl and I left the Waterboys and I went back to doing freelance studio work. I did things like Hipsway and Swing Out Sister. And oh, great. Okay. I, di- I did an ABC album. And and um, and then the Julian Cope people phoned me up and said, oh, you know, we're gonna, we've signed a record deal with Ireland Records. We're going to do a, a more commercial album. Will you be in the band? So I did that whole um, World Shut Your Mouth, St. Julian and all that stuff, yeah. That was a great album, really. Yeah, it was good. And again, big old drum sounds on it that just instantly grabs you, you know? Uh, great. So I, I'm always, as a drummer, you always listen for the drum sounds. There's nothing worse than hearing something that's, you think, oh, it could be better. But again, really great sounding instruments. Well, I mean, I think that was one of the best drums. Well, it's one of the best drum sounds I've ever had. And at the time, it was the best drum sound I'd ever had because... They basically hired this guy, Ed Stasium, to do the production for the first part of the album. And he he was from America and he'd done the Ramones and he'd done Living Colour with Will Calhoun and everything. Yeah, yeah. He was a real dyed-in-the-wool rock, old-school rock producer. And when he got to the studio, he said, I'm going to hire in all this Valve equipment. He hired in all these Pultec, Mike Prees and EQs and everything. And we spent a couple of hours getting the drum sound. And I came in the control room and I just thought, this drum sound is absolutely incredible. It's so powerful. He was just a brilliant, well, he's still alive. I'm talking about him in the past tense. It was, he was a great producer and it was a great sound. And then halfway through the album, we switched over to Warren Livesey, who'd done um, Deacon Blue, uh, people like that. And it was a more popular sound. But again, he was a great engineer and we got a great drum sound on that as well but the, the the track world shut your mouth that was done by ed stasium and it was just a massive drum sound huge sounded everything it sounds huge and it, it sounds it has a live feel to it as well which yes is, which is, it even adds to it even more you know yeah and of course we, we have to talk paul mccartney um because at that point prior to the album that, that you did he was going through an interesting phase, wasn't he? In, yeah. his, in his career, frog, frog chorus things that. Yes, <laughs> I did one of those. Did you really? Yeah, <laughs> I could go on to that, but no. I think the thing was he was working with a lot of American session musicians like Jeff Picaro and and all that. Phil Ramone producing and everything. And I don't know what prompted him to do so, but he he hired a new manager, and the manager said, "You know, Paul." You're, you're you're doing a disservice to your legacy of songs. You never play any of the Beatles songs, and also you're playing you're playing with all these amazing musicians, but it's just ending up sounding really conservative and safe and everything. What we should do is we should hire a, a young. Everybody else does this now, but this was kind of the first time anybody had done it. You've got to find a, a young band of people no one's ever heard of, and you know we'll have this young gun band behind you and you'll be out there the older guy was only about 40 at the time of course yeah and um and um we'll do an album with them and then we'll do a tour and he went oh okay kind of thing so they set up these kind of audition jam sessions 
in East London, in a warehouse, East London, in the summer of 1987. And I got phoned as a studio guy around town. I got phoned to go to one of them. And, um, yeah, I went down and set up my drums. I didn't really know what to expect. And then Paul and Linda breezed in, and I, my kind, I kind of nearly fainted. <laughs> and, and Paul put on a Les Paul guitar. And he just sort of said, I, I really like playing guitar. So we're just going to do some 50s rock and roll. And, and luckily, because I'd been to college and I'd played in cover bands and all that kind of stuff, I knew all this little Richard stuff. I vaguely knew, you know, the idiom of yeah. the slightly halfway between a swing and halfway between a straight. Yeah. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, um, a all that kind field. of stuff. Tricky yeah. field to get right, that, isn't it? Yeah. And also not not hammering the rim shots and not hammering the bass drum. It's all kind of top, top kit symbols and washy, washy symbols and everything. And I think he must've been impressed by that. But anyway, I did a couple of those and um, I was the only person that, that got chosen out of about a hundred people. Wow. I was the only person they, towards the end of the year, they said, we're going to do this album. Will you play drums on it? I said, yeah, I'd absolutely love to. And it was only me and Paul and Linda. And so the manager said, we need to get somebody else. Why why don't we get Hamish Stewart from the Average White Band in? So Hamish came down. So it was basically to begin with, it was me, Paul, Linda and Hamish Stewart. And um, the other thing the manager had done, he encouraged Paul to co-write some songs. And he, and he said, you know, uh, uh, your songs are perceived as a bit sort of soppy and Mamby Pamby, but you're not really like that. So why don't you write some tougher songs? So they put him together with Elvis Costello and Elvis Costello did the sort of John Lennon role in yeah. the songwriting partnership. So we, the start of the album was us recording with Elvis Costello, these songs that they'd written together. I'll tell you what, the results are pretty stunning, aren't they? Yeah. I, I've always, until that point, I'd kind of struggled to take to Paul McCartney's solo material. Even some of the wing stuff, I wasn't a huge fan of. When that album came out, it was like, whoa, this is, you know, long before I knew who'd played on it, I was yeah, yeah. totally taken with the album straight away. I mean, there's some heavy na heavyweight names involved as well, wasn't there? Well, I know that was the thing was because it's Paul, you know, we worked with a lot of amazing producers, Trevor Horn and Mitchell Froome from Crowded House and Chris Hughes from Tears for Fears yes. we, and um, Greg Hawks from The Cars and everything. We worked with all these amazing producers and Jeff Emmerich was involved, the Beatles engineer, and George Martin was involved. And one of the first sessions I did before we started the album, he was working on one of those Rupert the Bear soundtrack yeah. things. And um, again, they called me up and said, Paul would like you to attend the studio tomorrow to play on a song. So I said, fine. I went down there. It turned out to be a song called Tropic Island Hum off a Rupert the Bear movie. Anyway, I sat down, they put a chart in front of me and it was handy that I could read music. And then all these brass players turned up. It was like a jazz swing track, which is not my forte. And I set up the drums. In walks Jeff Emmerich, who I'd never met before, and starts miking up the drums. Yeah. And I was, I was going, oh, Christ, Jeff Emmerich. And then um, Paul walks in and says, right, we're going, we're going to start recording this song. And um, I've got a co-producer, and in walks Sir George Martin. So oh. one of the first... 
One of the first recording sessions I did with Paul was with Jeff Emmerich and Sir George Martin. But the kind of people have asked me in interviews before, how do you function? Well, you've just got to be professional and think, you know, I'm here for a reason. I know I can play it. I'll just have to play it and not think about it too much kind of thing. Yeah, it's plenty of time to think about it afterwards, isn't there? You know, yeah. get the job done first. And But going back to those um, audition things, I had the same prejudice I used to like Wings. I like Band on the Run and and Wings Over America and all that stuff. But you know, the re, the last few albums had been a bit sort of a bit wet sounding. And I had the same prejudice. I was doing Julian Cope and the Water Boys, and I thought I was the young hard drummer around town and everything. I went to this first jam session. He plugged in the guitar, turned up the volume, feedback immediately, started screaming, "Lose Hill!" down the microphone i thought oh shit i'm so prejudiced this guy's actually better than a lot of the people who's better than most of the water boys you know he's rocking out he's such an amazing musician anyway i used to do gigs with julian cope and the water boys and people like that if there were only five people in the audience they get all down about it and do half a half energy show and i thought hey, no that's not good enough you know but paul just rehearsing in a warehouse he was you know kicking butt kind of thing and i just thought you know here's a real professional and he's enjoying himself and he's really letting rip and it was like that when we did the tour yeah. you know it was probably one of the rockingest bands i've ever played in everything was like turned to 11 and he was screaming down the microphone and you know he he kind of turned it around on that tour people started to respect him again but he was an amazing musician who could rock out just like anybody else, but people had painted him as the wet one. John Lennon was the cool one and Paul was the wet one, which wasn't the case at all. You must have, um, you must have enjoyed that tour quite a lot. Yeah. I imagine. Um, uh, was the live band made up much the same as the studio musicians? No, really. Most of the studio was, was basically Linda, Paul, me and Hamish most of the time. Okay. And then, Towards about three quarters of the way through the album, they got Robbie in to do some guitar overdubs. And then when towards the end of the album, when we were thinking about preparing for the tour, we needed a keyboard player. And I think the manager suggested Wix, but I'd already done sessions with Wix and Robbie knew Wix really well. And when the name of Wix came up, me and Robbie said, oh, yeah, get Wix in. He's amazing. He's the perfect guy for the band. And so when we were doing the first rehearsals, that was just a fantastic, it's the best band I've ever been in. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, Hamish could play bass, guitar, was an amazing singer. And Wix was an amazing keyboard player. Robbie's probably one of the best guitarists I've ever played with. And Paul was playing amazing bass and guitar and piano. And Linda was just great fun to be around. Linda was, you know, she wasn't really interested in being a great musician, but she was just a nice person to have around. And and so we're just it was one of those things like all bands say, it's us against the world kind of thing. It felt like a really tight-knit team when we went out on tour. It was a really good feeling to be playing. And it was quite small. When I did Dar Straits, there was nine people on stage and it, it felt more like a sort of chamber orchestra, whereas the McCartney tour felt like it was an actual rock band. Of course, of course. That's interesting. So that felt more like a rock band than, than Dire Straits. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's interesting. You see, Paul, I can't remember him telling me what to play on anything. When we rehearsed, we started rehearsing because he's got his own complex. He's got his own recording studio, his own rehearsal space. 
we just started sort of informal rehearsals, just playing songs. And he gave us some cassettes and said, shall we learn these songs for next week and everything. And, and we, and a lot of the songs he'd never played because after sort of 1966 or whatever it was, the Beatles never played live. So a lot of the stuff from Sergeant Peppers and obviously Abbey Road and Yellow Sub, um, Magical Mystery Tour, they never played live. So kind of Robbie and Wicks were teaching him the songs in a way. How did the bass part go? I've only ever played it once on the record kind of thing. So I can't remember Paul ever telling me what to play or anything, but I just wanted to do the right thing by Ringo. I just thought Ringo was an amazing drummer and I wanted, and also I really liked Paul's drumming on Band on the Run. He kind of played for the song and he did weird fills in weird places. And I really wanted to recreate that live. And so um, I just chose to play as much like Ringo on the Beatles stuff and as much like Paul on the wing stuff as I could. And he never questioned it. And so when we went out on tour, it was just fun. You know, he was just laughing and really enjoying it. And to cut to the chase, when we did the Dire Straits thing, it was more scripted. It was Mark saying, oh, no, you have to hit that cymbal then. And that Tom has to come. When I play that riff on the guitar, you have to hit that Tom. And so it was like a mini orchestral, which was good in a different way. It was amazing discipline to to have to play almost an orchestral score every night perfectly for two and a half hours. Um but it wasn't really like a rock show. There, were, there wasn't much improvisation. It was a lot of it was like worked out, quite complex music worked out in advance. I know that Mark Knopfler is a bit of a tough taskmaster uh, with, with people. I have I was lucky enough to have interviewed Pick Withers, oh gosh, right, oh, yeah. way back at the beginning and obviously from the very early days, you know, till 80 three or whatever it was and uh he said much the same you know that there's uh <laughs> he's a, a tough taskmaster um, yeah no but was it am i right in thinking it was a, a gig you weren't that interested in initially i think I, yeah well i've said that yeah yeah i mean not for well not for super negative reasons basically i should have kept doing mccartney really I, I decided at the end of the McCartney tour, you can't get any better than this kind of thing. And he was talking about doing another studio album and then eventually another tour. And I, the studio, the Flowers in the Dirt album was about 14 months of studio. Wow. Playing, playing the same sort of 20 songs, which got whittled down to about 12 songs. Yeah. It was really good fun. And we had a laugh every day. And I just thought, I don't know if I could do all that again. It wouldn't be the same. We were like a discovering, we were discovering each other and discovering the process. Me and Hamish were discovering Paul and Linda when we did the Flowers in the Dirt album. And I just thought, you can't kind of go and do that again. And then the tour was so incredible. I mean, it was just so exciting when the tour got announced and the whole American first American leg sold out in 20 minutes Wow, kind of thing. And we ended up playing these huge, enormous football stadiums. And I just thought, can would it be the same if I did it again in a year's time or in two years' time? And I thought, no, I'd, I'd rather sort of leave on a high kind of thing, which was probably a stupid thing to do anyway. <laughs> I told Paul after the tour that I didn't want to do it anymore, which was obviously a very difficult conversation because no one tells Paul they don't want to work with him. So he was 
annoyed and I was embarrassed and I'm probably thinking what an idiot I am. But I just knew I, in my stomach, I just knew I couldn't do it. And so I was going to go back to doing freelance studio work, which was what my first love was. And I'd had a few successes. The Edie Brickell album had come out and been a big success in America. And so I thought, oh, no, I could be the British Jeff Picaro or something like stupid like that. So that was my plan. And about six months later, I started getting phone calls from Dire Straits management. management. We finished the album and we want to do a tour. And we saw you with Paul McCartney and we'd love you to do the tour. I just thought, I don't really want to go on another massive long tour and so I said no I'm, I'm gonna stay at home and do studio work so I went okay and then a few weeks later they phoned again no we really want you to do the tour anyway this went on and on a bit and I had a manager at the time and my manager said look I know you don't really want to do it but why don't you just go and meet them and then if you meet them they'll either not want you to do the tour because they don't think you're any good and you won't have to worry about it it or else you'll like them and you'll want to do the tour so why don't you just go and meet them so I, I went to our studios where they were mixing the on every street album and they had me play drums on most of the songs that was kind of an audition and the album Jeff Picaro had played on the album and I just thought well again the drum sound was phenomenal the drumming was amazing and so I, I was seduced, really, because I was playing these songs that Jeff Beccaro had played on. They played me the version with Jeff on it, and they said, you go out there and do something similar. So when I was playing along to the songs, I kind of imagined myself at Wembley Stadium playing this song like Jeff Beccaro and thought, this could be really good fun. So I kind of got seduced, and at the end of that, they said, oh, we'd still like you to do the tour. And I said, okay, I'll do the tour, really, because I wanted to recreate those Jeff Beccaro songs live uh what an album i mean calling elvis for example yeah. i mean that is, must be such it's a song i've never played but it, i can imagine it must be a lot of fun to play it was great because it was actually one of the easier songs in the show it just was the it was just two grooves really isn't it? it's just the tom yeah. groove and then the open hi-hat verse groove so i didn't have any complex arrangement in the show, it went on for about 15 minutes. <laughs> but um, it was a good warm-up because it just started with this tom groove, which is easy, and then most of the song was the open hi-hat thing, and then there was a big, long Danny Cummins percussion solo, which I was going, thank goodness, he's doing all the work and I'm just backing him up. So that was good. And it just went down phenomenally, especially the percussion solo. At the end of that, the whole crowd went completely ballistic. It was Danny, a great way Danny, to start Danny's the show. amazing, isn't he? An amazing it was amazing. It was really good. It was really good value every night. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And then some of the other songs I didn't enjoy because they were so complicated. And and if, if you know, I came from like an improvisational kind of drumming thing where I tried different things out every night or I tried a different fill or I try a different ride symbol or something. If you did that on some of the songs with Dire Straits, Mark would just turn around and give you a dirty look, you know. Yeah, that's if you fun. played the crash symbol slightly too loud just after his little guitar figure, he'd immediately turn around and go like that. And I just thought, you know, it's a rock band. It's not Leonard Bernstein at the Carnegie Hall kind of thing. So some of the songs... I didn't enjoy playing because they were just so complex. You started the song and you think, and you'd think you'd be in a physical state of nerves. Can I get to the end of the song without getting a dirty look, kind of thing? 
So in yeah, so respect. He didn't want he he didn't want you to be Chris Witten. He you know. Well, that's right. You know, he didn't want you to express yourself in any shape or form. Well, he, he didn't want me to be the. He kind of didn't want me to be the drummer because he asked Jeff Picaro to do the tour, and Jeff was doing Toto, and Jeff wasn't interested in doing a year and a half on the road with Dire Straits when he had amazing albums to play on, and he had his own band Toto, and so I was kind of second or third choice anyway. But you're right. Once they'd chosen me to be the drummer, they should have taken me for me yeah. and let me. I mean, there's a the basic of man management in in any business, whether you're making cars or producing television programs. When you hire somebody, you encourage them to be their best. You don't sort of criticize them and try and change them. That's not the point. You hire them for what they do, and then you try and get the best out of them. So yeah, it was a it was a tough tour. A kind of the other tough aspect was it was it was hundreds of shows and it was like over a year. It was like nearly a year and a half with the rehearsals and everything. So by the end of it, everybody was pretty much fried. Yeah, yeah, tough. And and but some great songs, great back catalogue of songs. And and you know, there's some um there's some Manu Cache stuff in there as well. Yeah. You know, so you've had some some nice drummers to draw from, haven't you, for, for parts and things. So well, the weird thing for me was we did that song Heavy Fuel, which was kind of Mark's re revision of Money for Nothing. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, Jeff Beccaro, and I used to play it every night. And it wasn't until after the tour that somebody told me, oh, Manakashe played on that. And it's just not his thing at all. No, no, no. It's 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 not as organic, if you like, as Manukashi might have done it. But, I, you know, well, he did do it. But, it, yeah, I, I totally get well, it. Well, when you look at Planet of New Orleans, that's that's quintessential Manukashi. It's got like a loping Tom groove yeah. and it's kind of jazzy. But Heavy feels more like Jeff Picaro. But it's amazing. Well, it shows that he can do all things. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of these guys, are the, the, you know, up there. Well, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. And so what what... What are you up to at, at, at the moment, Chris? Have you got you've got lots of recording stuff going on? Oh, yeah, I've got my I've got a home studio and I do remote recording. Yeah. And I've been planning to do it for like 10 or 15 years, but I just happened to have never lived anywhere that had a good enough internet to be able to send anyone any files. So finally living somewhere it's it's semi-slow internet but they're going to give us their high-speed cable broadband in a couple of months time so it'll be even but even then i could send people files and so i engineer and record myself i've got all the mics i've got all the drums i've got loads of amazing drums vintage camco and all the noble i've got the noble and cooley stuff from dire straits and paul mccartney and so yeah, I do. I've got a website, chriswitten.com. So yeah, people can ask me to play on their songs. And I, I've I've done a lot of drum sampling since the Dire Straits thing. I got involved in drum sampling with Tune Track, oh, and right. I, I've done a lot of packs with Tune Track, and um, we've done our own pack with record producer Peter Henderson, who I met doing Paul McCartney. We've got our own drum sample company and we've done stuff for Roland. We did the TM6 Pro, which is like a hybrid drum sampler yeah. thing. We that's did quite, the core library for that. That's quite Sorry? a That's a fair. Yeah, it's a couple of years ago, two oh, or three yeah. years ago. Well, they brought it out. It's meant for live drummers to back up their sounds, you know, to make, you know how it's the trend in really mainstream live music to have like samples on the bass drum and the snare and everything. 
And so it's designed for that. They brought it out about a year before COVID-19 hit. So hardly anyone's used it yet. Only people now are starting to use it because no one was touring. It's it's not for the studio, it's for live. And so you've got six triggers. You can either have like a bass drum. It's a a great piece of kit because you can put your own samples on it. You can put 808 samples on it and have your bass drum so you've got your acoustic bass drum through the PA and you can have an 808 sample through the PA mixed in and you can um, attach pads to it so you can have backing vocals or brass figures or percussion going. It's a great bit of kit. So we did the core library. We recorded the library for that at Real World Studios and Rockfield. Yeah. And then we did our own expansion pack, which is available on our own website. We're called CP samples, and we've done expansion packs for the TD50 and the TD17 as well, but based on drum samples, basically. Yeah, yeah, of course. Wow. So, see, the, the sampling stuff, is that something you enjoy? Do you get uh, from that or not? <laughs> well, well, just hitting the same the tune track. No, the tune track stuff, no, because yeah. their, their products are so deep. There's so many samples. Yeah. The first one we did was fun and then they developed their sample engine and it all got really really complex i know i was talking to matt hector you know the the yeah. drummer he does um well he was doing iggy pop uh, mark armand i was thinking he does oh, things okay. like that okay. yeah he did us he recently did a sample pack he was there for two weeks sampling every day for two weeks right he really he said he really enjoyed it I mean, it, the, the great thing about it is all about drums and it's about drum sounds. It's very creative because you're just trying to get different drum sounds the whole time, which I really enjoyed that aspect. I found cymbals and everything are a nightmare because you hit a cymbal, you've got to wait a minute for it to stop ringing before you can hit it again. Yeah. And you have to be so precise. You What tends to happen is you hit a cymbal and then you're desperate to sneeze or cough. And you think, oh, if I do that, it's going to ruin it. And you're oh. It's a night. It's very stressful. But anyway, doing doing the stuff of Roland, they've got fewer sample layers. So actually, it's just pure fun because you only have to do like 10, 10 hits on a snare drum or 10 hits on a bass drum. It's so easy. But the tune track stuff is really quite complicated and quite intense. So if you suffer from hay fever, then maybe that's not the career for no, you. No, <laughs> you can't do it. You have to do it in winter. Yeah. Oh, look, Chris, this has been an absolute treat. It really has. Thank you so much for uh, giving up your time. I say, I know you're busy, so, uh, you know, it's it's, all right. I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic. It's been great talking. uh, It it has indeed. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you have too. So uh, thank you very much indeed. And uh, all right. Hopefully, we'll see you out and about doing your thing shortly. Super. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Bye.